Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Saga of Ref the Sly. Part 2. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode concerns Part 2 of the Saga of Ref the Sly. For those of you following along at home, that is 6 through 13 stanzas, verses, the little sections. You see the numbers, you know what I'm talking about. So, before we get into that, however, I want to talk to you just a little bit. This is not very much. We're going to jump into it pretty quick. But I did want to brag a little bit about the Redbubble. It is actually full of stuff now. Our uh, digital design editor, wife, person, has put in so many hours making sure that everything we got on there is absolutely fantastic, even, even if you don't intend to buy anything. I would recommend going on there just to see the kind of design she put together. Um, for instance, each of the season photos, we're actually going to buy one of each so that we can put them on our couch. Yeah, we're nerds. Not that you have to do the same. If you want to, that's cool. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's up there. Um, some amazing stuff. Uh, just go have a look. Uh, even stuff that isn't necessarily really super Art of War gamey. I know, like, personally, even if I super like a brand, I don't necessarily want their name on me or to, like, do some free advertising or whatever. So we've got some stuff on there, too, that is just, it's just cool stuff that doesn't necessarily say the Art of War gaming on it. For instance, got to pick a fight with a dead guy sticker. Who doesn't want to pick a fight with a dead guy sticker? I'm just saying it's a fun thing to do. So go, don't go, keep listening to the show. It's all good. Uh, on that same note, though, if you guys have any recommendations, if anybody out there is like, man, I, I would just love to see this design or this concept uh, on, a, on a T-shirt or a sticker or whatever, get in touch with us. Hit up our email, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, wherever. And uh, yeah, let us know. We're always looking for new and exciting things to put out there. And if you've got a good idea, we are more than willing to use it. So please do. And to speak about our patrons, uh, once again, thank you. Thank you so much to all of you for helping out the show. We've got a nice little uh, little stash at this point. So as soon as there's a, a decent event or tournament nearby, we intend on going to it. But uh, this this uh, money that we're getting from it is going to en enable us to do more. So if any of you out there have been tempted to become patrons, we would absolutely appreciate it, of course. And it, that money is going to go into getting us to places, uh, to events, to tournaments, to anything really to do with wargaming that we can think of to, to put on the show. So, um, yeah, we'd love to bring you all more of that. Help us out. Before we actually get into the story, I know I brought this up a little bit last episode, but this story is lacking in a lot of tactical value. There's not a whole lot 
to say about, you know, if you, you pull this faint left or this faint right or obliques or anything like that. There's not a whole lot of that, as I'm sure you've probably caught on. That being said, these are fun stories. I'm actually really enjoying reading through this again because it's it's really fun to read. And honestly, as I'm going through it, I'm sitting here being like, they got to make a movie about this. I would watch this or, or like a limited series or something like that. Like this is actually a really cool story that I think would look really awesome on, on a screen someplace. So to any Hollywood executives that we might have in the listener base, wink, wink, because we have those. Think about it. Saga of Raph the Sly could be a good movie. I'm just saying. Uh, so yeah, that's where we're at. I'm enjoying reading this. I'm enjoying talking about it with y'all, but I also understand that there's not a whole lot of tactical stuff. It's just a nice little break, basically like an extended fiction focus at this point. But yeah, so, uh, we're going to get right into it with our, our first section. Uh, I want to let you know that we do have Stitch on later. Anybody who knows Stitch, you know, this is going to be a treat. If you don't know Stitch, you're going to in section two, but first let us speak of the rise of a legend. We pick up our study of uh, our friend Ref here after he's been uh, struck by Geller. If you'll recall, uh, last episode we were talking about how this guy strikes him twice with the haft of a spear and then rides off and is like, I beat him, he was nothing. I'm so awesome, and Ref did nothing, right? He, he acts as though he didn't hear anything, as though he doesn't even know about it. Such to an extent that people start to wonder. They're like, uh, is this guy, is this guy actually, you know, does he have honor? Because you got to return that stuff, right? But uh, nonetheless, our boy Ref, this is where he's at. But uh, before we get too much into it, I do want to introduce another cast of players. Now, I understand with absolute certainty that the number of Thors in this particular story is staggering. Because we had like Thor Bjorn last time around and Thor Gerd, right? So we got some more to add to that. So any of you who are keeping track, I'm sorry, it's a little confusing, but we'll get through it together. Even as we're going through the text, I'll remind you who these folks are. Just kind of want to introduce them first off. First off is Bjorn, who's a farmer at Hild. Then there's Helga, that's Bjorn's daughter, and she is described as being attractive, intelligent, a desirable match, and having a mind of her own. Next is Thormund, who is Helga's foster father and one of Bjorn's workers. Across the way, you have Thorgils. He is also known as Vikarskali, which means the bald dude from Vik. So, that's a nickname. <laughs> Apparently there's a little bald dudes. I think it was abnormal because there's a lot of people who had that nickname. Regardless, this particular uh, Thorgils is malicious, slanderous, cunning, a difficult person to be around, and the top farmer of Vic, hence Vickerskali, the bald dude from Vic. He's got four sons. The first is Thengil, next Orm, then Thorstein, then Gear. He's got a daughter, Olaf, uh, and uh, she's the wife of a guy named Gunnar. Gunnar is one of the leading men of this Western settlement that we'll be talking about later. Lastly, we have Bard, who is a trader and a merchant in the service of the king of Norway. He is known for being sharp-sighted. And then King Harald himself, ruler of Norway. But let's go back real quick. Let's go back to, to Iceland, where Ref is readying his ship to sail away. Gellir stops by, the fellow who, you know, 
gave him the two blows. He stops by to see the boat. And so as he's coming in and he's, he's got somebody else with him and they're coming up to see the boat and Ref notices them. And he comes at them. He's got an ads. And if you don't know what an ads is, it's like A-D-Z-E. It's like a, a hatchet had a baby with a scythe and they use it for woodworking. I honestly go check it out. That's what I think. When I look at it in a picture, I'm like, that is a, an axe scythe. A terrifying concept. Unwieldy as a weapon, one might think. However, Ref says to Gellir, now I'll repay your two blows for one. Strikes him in the side and kills him. The other dude runs away. He's like, I, I ain't messing with that. <laughs> so uh, Guest is like, you know, that was probably the right thing to do. The guy was bad-mouthing you. You've kind of redeemed your honor. That being said, you might want to go. Because this may not go well for you. And so he gives him a crew and supplies for his journey. And Ref sets off. Sets off going toward Greenland. But they kind of get sidetracked. There's a, there's a storm, there's a disturbance on the sea, and they get blown uh, more north than they had intended. And they start to scout the fjords, and they find this one fjord that goes all the way in, very long, between all these glaciers and gorgeous mountains. And as they travel up it, they uh, start to see signs of a settlement up ahead, but it's getting to be wintertime. And in a place like Greenland, where that really means something, they definitely had to stop. And so they, they stop a little short, they build a temporary hall, and they wait for spring. The next spring, they set sail toward this settlement, kind of a spread out area of different farms. And they land first at this farm, Hild. Remember, we had talked about that before. And uh, he, Ref comes into the employ of Bjorn, the farmer that runs Hild. Uh, Bjorn uh, kind of hires him off the boat. That's what it says in there. He arrives, Bjorn hires him, basically. But one has to think that Bjorn came out and went, wow, that is a nice ship. Because everybody's admired this ship so far. So Ref sails in, in this gorgeous ship. He's like, that's a nice ship. Ref's like, yeah, I made it myself. And so Bjorn's like, can you build stuff on the property? Just build buildings? And Ref's like, sure, I, yeah, I can do that. And he meets Helga, of course, as we've described as being uh, intelligent, mind of her own, very attractive. So he begins working there. Things are going well. On the other side of the headland lies the farm Vic. And this is run by Thorgil and his sons. Now remember, he's got, he's got several of them. His oldest son, Thengil, had asked for the hand of Helga in marriage before, but she had turned him down. Didn't really think him a good match, and knowing what we do about the family, uh, I can't say I blame her. But Ref, later on, after he's been working for Bjorn for a while, asks for Helga's hand in marriage. You have to imagine she accepts. It doesn't say anything about that in the text, but considering the fact that she had refused Thengil when he had asked, there's a heavy implication that this is definitely something she wanted too. And Bjorn, you know, Ref's a nice guy. He's a good guy, hard worker. Yeah, absolutely. So he's all for it. Um, Thormund, her foster father, is all for it. And so everybody's good for this. Uh, you can imagine that this may have raked at Thengil a little bit. The only condition, however, that Bjorn has is that he, that, that Ref and Helga take over the farm. That they have to be there after, because he's getting old. Bjorn's an old dude, and, and running a farm like this takes a lot of work. And so they agree, of course. And they, they take it over, and, and they see a whole lot of success in there. And again, this is talking about um, Ref 
quite a lot. But he's also described as working the whole time, like going out to his boat shed and building things, working on the ships. And again, running a farm is a hard business. Just a normal farm is hard business, let alone a community of 12 or so folks who are all working for you. So I imagine that as he's doing this, Helga is, is taking over the business of running the farm. But Bjorn's old, and he dies. And they continue to run the farm for eight years. Again, he's working hard, and he leaves in the, in the evening after getting up at the crack of dawn, and he has his ads there at the workshop. And he leaves it there when he locks up. They end up having three kids, him and Helga, Stein, Bjorn, and Thormund, named after uh, their fathers, respectively. So one day, Ref is heading home from work. And of course, this is after the eight years that I had talked about of, of living here, tending the land, becoming a very wealthy person. He's headed home and he sees a polar bear ahead of him. And the polar bear, see, polar bear sees that he is there as well, alone. Polar bear starts coming towards him and he says, I'm a pretty good fighter, but I don't think I can take this polar bear on my onesie with no weapons. And so he, he hustles back toward his boat shed where his ads is, so he can use a weapon actually against the polar bear. In the meantime, however, Thorgil's sons return and find the bear. And so they pull up, they say, okay, here's a bear. They kill it. And Ref gets back, bear's dead. doesn't really think much of it. A little bit less work he has to do. Thorgil's sons return home and they brag of killing this bear. Of course, killing a polar bear, especially without a rifle, it has to be a difficult thing to do. They're large creatures, angry creatures. We have a few listeners in Canada, and I'm sure you know far better than I do, uh, polar bears. We've got grizzlies around here, but I'm pretty sure they're a lot smaller than the polar bear. They're huge. So, of course, they're bragging about it. But they also start talking about how Ref chickened out. Now they saw that his tracks were leading away in the snow. At one point, they're like, yeah, and he peed himself, too. And they started to just make up all these different things. He's a coward. He's all, he's, 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 he has no, no will. There's no reason to listen to this guy or like him. And they mock him with a couple of different names too. They name him Ref the Timid, Ref the Effeminate, Ref the Gay. At this time, homosexuality was very much frowned upon in this particular culture. And it could get you into a lot of trouble. In fact, part of the rumor that they started to spread is that he was banished from Iceland for his homosexuality. And they start to spread this around, everybody else in the settlement. But Ref acts like he doesn't hear anything, acts completely ignorant of the whole thing, but quietly he is readying his ship and he arranges with a buyer to sell his land and he'll let them know when it's going to happen, but he's going to stick around for just a little bit while longer. And this is all done quietly. And so his foster father comes to him and says, you know, Ref, I've, I've been holding my tongue on this, but these guys have been talking a whole lot of crap about you. And it really weighs heavily on one's honor that you have listened to this and haven't done anything about it. And Ref tells him, a man should have his plans worked out before he enters into a great undertaking or incites others to do so. So you have to think that he's got that plan. He's ref. We know. And so he starts to fashion a huge spear that is good for stabbing and slashing. And it has a shorter haft than like a normal spear. I'm picturing a glaive, personally, is, is kind of what I have in my head, like a, a short glaive. Regardless, 
A very nice weapon, with a honed edge, as only a master craftsman can build. And he goes over to Vic, you know, the farm across the way there, with the folks who have been spreading all these wonderful rumors, announces himself, and asks for compensation from Thorgils. I think we know where this is going. And Thorgils has a bunch of smoke in his eyes, because this is supper time and he's cooking, and, and he's, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you compensation for one thing. We're just joking, man. And on the other thing, I actually believe it. I actually believe the things that I've been saying about you. And Ref kills him. Just runs him through. Now, Ref announced himself to Thorgils. Because Thorgils could have given him compensation. There could have been a peaceful way to resolve this. Thorgils chose not to. And yet chose to mock Ref yet again. So Ref kills him. I just want to backtrack a little bit. The killing of Thorgil here and the killing of Thorbjorn from our first section, who is the, the guy uh, who Ref caught with his pounce down, basically. In both of these cases, Ref, basically, he, he, it's an honorable thing. He announces himself and says, I'm looking for compensation. He's armed, so it's obvious what he's going to do if, if he doesn't get it. But he gives them a chance. He gives them a chance in order to redeem themselves, I suppose. Now, Geller... It was a different story. He was running his mouth and, and kind of the same idea. He also had chances to take it back. He didn't. However, each of these guys was an individual. Easy to kind of walk up and have decent honor when it comes to taking on individuals. But if you'll recall, when Ref killed Thorbjorn, he didn't stick around and, and fight all of Thorbjorn's staff. He hid. Because he knew, just like we all know, that fighting groups as a one person is, is a difficult thing, inadvisable. So there's these four guys, these four sons of Thorgil. And no doubt, they're going to come looking. No doubt they're going to come and, and try to get some sort of vengeance for this. And so Ref goes down into the boathouse in the dark and waits. And sure enough, the brothers return in their boat. Thengil jumps ashore first. And he goes into the boathouse to get some rollers to bring the, the boat up onto the shore. Ref decapitates him. Thorstein is next, and he carries the oars, and he's going into the boathouse when Ref runs him through. But before he dies, he's able to shout a warning to his remaining two brothers. Olm and Gear, these two remaining brothers, hide in Ref's boat shed, sure that he will not look for them there. But he does, and he kills them. And he heads back to his uh, farm and everything's ready. The ferry's loaded. Uh, all of his followers are like, yeah, dude, we like you. We're going to go with you. And, and then he takes his family too, Helga, the kids, and Thormund, and they sail away. Now Gunnar, remember him, he's the, the husband of Thorgil's daughter. Now, he's not too happy about this. His in-laws just got destroyed. A father and four sons in one night. And so they do a little search. And after a while, after they don't find him, he says, there's no way that they survived on the open ocean. And we've searched the, some of these fjords and there was no sign of them. So, you know, I'm, there, he's probably dead. We're, we're pretty sure, like, 90% sure that this guy's dead. Let's go to Norway for a second, across the way. We have Bard. Remember, he's a trader and merchant who's in the service of the king. And originally, he wants to go to Iceland. But the king says, no, 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 go to Greenland. 
I would like some walrus ivory. I didn't even know walruses had ivory before I read this. And so he goes, gets into Greenland, and just so happens to land in the same area that we're talking about already. And he winters with Gunnar. And eventually, you know, there, there's been these rumors, right? These rumors of a dude who was a, a killer in Iceland, and then he went to Greenland and has kind of been a killer there, a terror. So Bard eventually asks him, is there any truth to this? What's going on with this legend, Gunnar? And Gunnar, he's like, yeah, it's pretty legit. Guy killed five people in one night and sailed away into the, into the darkness, and we have no idea where he is. He's probably dead. And Bard says, I don't think so, guy. Like, this, this guy sounds like he had a plan. You know, in order to pull off what he did, that's a lot of forethought. You're dealing with a very cunning person. And to think that he just haphazardly sailed into a storm and foundered, like, that's... I don't know. That doesn't match up with what I'm hearing here. We need to, we need to look a little bit further. We need to search a little bit more thoroughly. And so they do for a while. They search this fjord and that fjord. Many of them are dead ends, no sign of civilization, no sign of humans. And then one day they find some shavings as though an ads has been going at something. And they say, this we know him to be a craftsman. We know him to be a wood builder. So he's got to be around here someplace. And sure enough, sure enough, they, they find a fortification, spy it from the shore. And it is beautiful. Absolutely exquisite. It's strong. It's durable. It is made with perfect craftsmanship, as though it was carved out of one single plank. And standing on the battlements, it's a strong, large man. Ref the sly. And he mocks him a little bit. You know, what, uh, they say, what's going on in there? And he's like, ah, I'm just hanging out. What news of the outside world? And they say, ah, we're not going to tell you. And he says, how far are you guys thinking about going? And they say, we're not going to go any further. So it becomes pretty obvious what everybody's intentions are here. And Bard and Gunner say, you know what? We're, we're just going to be done with this right now. Burn it. Burn the fortification. So they gather some timber. And they walk it up and they put it at the base of the fortification, light it on fire. And water comes out of the wall and douses the fire. And they try again. Douses it again. Build one a little bit higher. Water comes out of the wall even higher and douses the fire. Ref kind of comes out onto the walls and says, you guys having trouble? Had anything lit out there? And they, they're they going to go. But they say, we're, we'll be back. We're coming back for you, Ref. And he says, nobody, none of you people are going to be the ones that kill me. Straight up. And so they head back. And Gunnar returns to the western settlement, while Bard returns to Norway. He doesn't go empty-handed, though. He goes with a trained polar bear. A board game made of walrus ivory. It's a board game that was very similar to chess. It, could, it mentions in the text being able to play the old game and the new an older version of chess had one single king. And the point was for that person with the king to get it to a particular edge of the board. Uh, the other person was to keep them from doing it, kill the king before it got there. And the, the two king one is the one that we're more familiar with. It wasn't exactly like the one we play, but it's a, a precursor to chess. Made out of walrus ivory. Pretty cool, right? And then a golden engraved walrus skull. All very flashy gifts, each one of their own, a very suitable and grand gift. Bard brings them all back. 
and hands them to the king. And one at a time, he gives them to the king, and the king says, this is an amazing gift. What does he want from me in return? A gift like this isn't given for no reason. He's, Bard says, he just wants your friendship. Gunnar just wants to be friends, mutually supportive. And so by the end of gift three, the king, king suspects something even more. He says, okay, what is this about? And Bard says, well, there's this guy, Gunnar, up in, uh, you know, up in ice, uh, Greenland, and he's having a trouble. He's having some trouble with this guy, Ref, and we need to support him because, you know, I, I like this Gunnar guy. And the king says, I don't think you should go back. This sounds like nothing but trouble, and I, I don't think it's going to end well, so I would really appreciate it if you didn't go back. Uh, Bard says, I made a promise. I made a promise to him, and, and that's kind of my honor, so I, I need to go. The king thinks on it for a while. And before Bard is, is ready to go, king comes to him and says, I think I figured out this water system you were talking about. Because the king was known for being very wise, for having a really sharp mind. And so the, the king says, I think I know how this works. He has to have some sort of underground piping, right? Because he's a little bit back from the shore, but he's got this water coming out of the walls. So the only thing I can figure, he's got pipes buried deep underground. And those are piping in the water into the main settlement in case of what you saw, you know, somebody trying to burn him out or even a siege, having that clean water. And as far as it pouring out, the only thing he could figure is that there were incredibly tiny holes drilled into the wood that there was like a mold placed in them and that that mold moved out of the way. The water flowed freely out onto whatever fire is, was underneath it. So between these two things, the king said, you know, this is, this is what you're up against. And honestly, uh, the best thing to do would be to dig down, find those pipes, destroy them, and then try to burn them out. Bard says, you know, that makes sense. King gives him one last warning. Bard, don't go. Don't go back to Greenland. But Bard prepares to set sail and heads back to Greenland. Now we see a lot of things going on here in this particular section. And, and Stitch and I are going to talk about that a little bit more in, uh, in section two. But there's a common theme uh, occurring for Ref. And it's just something that I really, really want to stress about this reading. And it's that there is no back and forth. There's no him like attacking someone and then like parry block, parry block. Ref is efficient. He plans. He is prepared. Each of these times, when he hears this slander being said about him, he doesn't do anything at the time. He doesn't, he doesn't get up and, and get mad at people for calling him lazy when he's young. He doesn't get in Geller's face immediately after he starts to lie about the, the butt kicking that he received. He doesn't even go over to Thorgil and correct him on some of the slanderous things that he was saying. Ref makes a plan, you know. When he, get, when he gets Geller, he's already on his way out of town. I think he's already figured it out because when he, when he killed Thorbjorn, his mom was like, okay, you got to go. And so he left. And then now he's kill, killed Gellir and he's like, okay, splitting afterwards seems to be a good thing to do. Because even if I'm willing to pay compensation, these guys have relatives. They're going to come at me. And so he knows, he knows. And then by the time that we get to Thorgil, he's become even more efficient. He's building specific weapons that nobody has seen him with. Again, nobody knows that he has this gigantic spear that can stab and slash because he just built it. And he did it in secret, much like the boat earlier on. So Ref doesn't play his hand. He doesn't, or sorry, he doesn't show his hand before it's, before it's good in time. He doesn't want people to know what he's got going on because how do you prepare for the unexpected? 
How do you prepare for a gigantic spear if you don't even know he has it? And so he starts to become far more meticulous in the way that he's approaching these things. And again, that, that's also shown in his killing of, the, of Thorgil's sons. One might look at that and say it was a dishonorable act, but what was it? What, did he have a better choice? Well, wait for them to come at him in a, in a group? That's not smart. They'd already dishonored themselves. He knew what their response was going to be. And so he was, he was acting out of efficiency there. Again, no flashy moves, no prolonged conflict. When Ref strikes, he strikes hard and he wins with that strike, but it's not just the strike that matters. It was all the preparation that went into it. The reason he's able to escape and get away from whatever uh, vengeance killing would have come to him for the, the death of Gellir, he leaves in his own boat that he prepared himself. And the same thing is, is uh, done here when he's at Hild and starts coming into conflict with the folks from over in Vic. And so I really dig this. Ref is really starting to refine himself as a character, as a hero within this story. The little elements we were picking up in the beginning, he's quiet. You know, people don't necessarily know what he's doing all the time. They assume that he's one thing or the other, and he doesn't correct them because that plays to his strengths. You know, when he was younger, they thought he was a cold buyer, good for nothing, layabout. Well, he was strong, obviously. Runs a seasoned warrior right through. So he didn't care. He didn't care about people's opinions of him because he knew the truth. He knew that he could run them through. Same thing when Geller was going off about the fight that he won. It's like, I know, that, I know the truth. I also know that I can take this guy, and I will. Thorgils start spreading their stuff. Makes a plan. He doesn't go on tilt. That's what I like about Ref. You know, he, he doesn't lose his temper. He's not sitting out here getting spitting mad over all of these slights, all of these insults that he has suffered. He bears it quietly while plotting vengeance. Who doesn't admire that? That's our current state of affairs and where we leave Ref. He's got this fantastic fortress. Everybody is inside and it seems to be impregnable, but there's folks on the way that have a plan against that. So we'll see how that plays out in the next episode. But for now, I'd love to go to part two where we get to speak to a good friend of mine, Stitch. me today to, to kind of talk about some of the concepts that we discussed in our last section is Stitch. Uh, those of you a part of the Belagarth community will know him as one of the preeminent fighters of the West. And as a treat, we got him on this show. How are you doing, Stitch? Oh, I am doing great. I'm so excited today. Well, I'm excited to have you on too. Uh, now, I may understand your pedigree, but for the listeners at home, uh, why don't you share a little bit about your wargaming experience? So, uh... I'm currently sitting on nine years now in Belagarth, and I do, uh, I also have about, um, I'd say five of those years now in, uh, Ampguard, and then, uh, mm -hmm. those are pretty much for the war game side, you know, I, I've, I've been around a lot of really good war, Warhammer players, things like that, but most of my experience is in the foam fighting side of things. Sure. Sure, and, and you also do uh, some some gaming. I can see that uh, from your apparatus over there that you uh, are not inexperienced at the online gaming either. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely the war game side. Yeah, of uh, online games, getting into some shooters. You know, like a uh, Call of Duty Warzone. I'm currently really big on a 
Grand Theft Auto uh, RP, so it just uh, it, it adds an extra element to that. And um, and I guess also the other experience I would have, I do um, I do now. I'm just shoot. How old am I? 31 now, and I've been uh, I've been doing uh, multiple forms of martial arts since I was eight years old. So I also have that mental side of things too. All right. Well, it sounds like you have a fairly extensive background in this sort of thing, and uh, I think the theme from all those things you said, it's like preparedness. You mm-hmm. don't go into these things blind. It's not something you just that you just picked up and were naturally good at. Though I'm I'm sure that you have uh, some natural abilities too. But to be at a at a high level of these things, mm-hmm. it's something you have to to work at. What's what are some of the some of the background stuff that you put in in order to be good at the things that you love? So I'm a I'm a big believer. You know, the first the first place I heard it from is like a you know the romantic like how we romanticize a samurai in a way. And a big thing I always heard from it was, uh, like, one of their philosophies was there's a lesson in everything. And so I really, I really stick to that mantra a lot. Is uh, if I'm already there and using my effort of time to experience, then I want that experience to give me something. Sure. And so, so I'll, and you know, coming coming from uh, from from a, a poor lifestyle growing up too, it's like being really thrifty in that sense than just physical items and stuff. It's just a Oh, I have to make this this situation work for for my benefit because I don't have any other way. So it's like a very DIY style in that sense. Sure, sure. Uh, efficiency. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Efficiency is is the name of the game for me for sure. So in terms of uh, like preparing for the field in Bellagarth, when you mm-hmm. throw a highly surgical shot, because when I watch you fight, you're not one for flourishes or for a bunch of unnecessary motion. This efficiency that you talk about, you bring it to the field as well. So when it, when it comes to that perfect shot, when we're talking about that surgical shot that wins the day, what is behind that? What kind of work goes into being able to throw that, that perfect shot? So uh, the the skill I pride myself in is perception because of that, because my brain, things happen fast around me and the efficiency part of that is I want as quickly as possible to know what my best guess is because I play the number game, the numbers game at all times. Like that's what I believe everyone's at. So when I see, it's like, a, it's like the intuition from, because I, I put a lot of practice into it, the intuition will hit me and, and like it, it's like an itch. It's like this is, this is what you were looking for, and then that's where the muscle memory will kick in. So I prepare by putting myself in the positions I'm comfortable with, and uh, mm-hmm. and also really, like I said, really paying attention to fighters, even if I'm not the one fighting them, because that that is something I feel lacks a lot, is because people want to remember their moments. So it's a, uh, and I do I I do also have ADHD, so it's a. Uh, since I'm already noticing more than I want to, I just I just put it to work for me. And, sure, you basically and, turn into a superpower at that point. Yeah, I'm very practiced in it, uh, I would say, to where... So then even if I'm doing something here, my brain can still, like, juggle something to my side. And that's where, like, that's where I have the fun of, like, back-blocking things like that and really, like, tripping up their brain. Because once I have... Once I'm, like, know I'm in there and I'm, like, in their head... Mm-hmm. That's my realm, and, it, and I'm very good at getting someone to fight me at my flow, and I'm sure. very practiced in that flow. Oh yeah, and, you, and like home base is always the place you want to be. Make make the other person fight on your turf. And I definitely have like uh, I definitely like that's my guilty pleasure. Is like I want to be as unique as possible. So I really am practiced in doing things I don't think other people do, which I feel also gives me that edge that I want. 
So, I mean, it sounds like you're operating not just from the vein of intuition, which it sounds like serves you very well, but you're also trying to be ahead of the enemy. It's not just an intuitive process, but mm -hmm. you're taking what you know from either fighting them or watching them fight mm -hmm. and then using that to say, what are they going to do next? How can I set myself up to anticipate this? Yeah. And just that also it's a, cause usually it's multiple things. It's not always one thing. So if I get like a couple examples of things I know they do, my brain intuitively chooses the one I know they think about the least. So, okay. so that way, that way it's the, it's the most unfamiliar territory for them. And mm -hmm. it naturally, because they want to, because when they see something that, that their brain hasn't really registered a lot before, they subconsciously want to follow it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's like, it's like the slithering snake, that whole like trope you see in movies and stuff. It's the, it's the same concept of, of tempo shifting and things like that is I want as soon as I know they're in that trance, the tempo shift happens and then it gives like an appearance of like either vanishing in that one moment or it's, it's like like the trick that like Moses and people are always telling me about of like whipping the sword in front of someone's face. It like it, it resets your brain for a second. So, right. I, so I'm trying to move on that reset. Sure. Well, that makes sense. Uh, and, and so, again, it's that kind of idea of not just waiting for the opportunities, but also uh, making the opportunities yeah, yes, for yourself. Absolutely. And so in this, this efficiency, um, I imagine that you're not one to necessarily leave somebody injured behind you, whether, it, whether it's within the, the online gaming that you do or within the field gaming that you do. Um, do, you, do you like to leave people with an arm or leave them with a, with a leg or are they best dead? Oh, definitely best dead for me because because uh, I'm, I'm a momentum-based fighter to where it's like one gimmick leading into the next one. And so mm -hmm. if, if, if I leave them, then I give them too much of a chance for the momentum to shift their way. So if sure. so when I do the points when I choose to strike, it's and that's like whenever I'm sparring people sometimes like you get those extra hits like they're already dead and it's going. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry. Like this is like once I start, my brain already has a set amount of things it wants to do, and it it it, it will keep going because I want to make sure that I finish what I was doing. And usually, if if in the best possible scenario, I'm I'm stopping on the beat I, I had already pre-planned, but I'll definitely go sure. in for the kill because because it was like you know my brain sees it as my responsibility because I chose to engage them. And usually, especially with the expectations set around me if like my teammate sees that I'm fine someone, they're gonna assume either they're gonna hear me yell de dead really loud or that person is no longer a problem. And since I know a lot sure. of people assume that, I'm gonna make, I'm gonna fulfill that expectation. I, I would agree with you. I, I think leaving somebody behind uh, to just come back and stab you in the back later is is not a wise policy. Uh, so yeah, that that is also a part of that efficiency thing, I mm -hmm. think. Um, which I, I, it's, it's a very, we've got a, a theme going for you here mm -hmm. that I'm digging. So kind of shifting the gears a little bit, boasting. It's right. something that I've heard a lot about on both sides. I've heard that it, it helps kind of get in the head of your opponent. I've heard that it reveals too much of yourself too fast. Do you think that there is a valid reason to be boasting or is it best to keep quiet about things? So for me personally, I, I like, I, like I'm, I'm trying to practice more of it. Like I, I'm very bad at talking myself up. So, I'm, mm -hmm. I, I like I want. That's like what I do. So like the other part I do for Belgarth, you know, like when I have experiences at an event, I'll write about it in like a fantasy setting. 
which mm-hmm. allows me to be more confident because my character is supposed to be like the protagonist of the story so he has to have that like belief in himself and stuff sure sure and so in uh in actual fighting though and like, like when you talk about boasting and stuff like that it's it's funny because most of it, most of the time, it's coming from some of my friends or someone with me. Is is it's it's coming in the form of a compliment, but they are actually like boasting for me, and and I use that as a weapon. So like uh, the way I saw it, and like I would joke with like my friends in Blackboard and stuff, is I would tell them I'd be like, yeah, the uh, the passive skill of my downstick fighting is that every time someone talks about it out loud, it gets stronger, because that <laughs> because now it's because now it is dug into people's brain. Is being fueled by faith at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I dig that. Um, but uh, yeah, it sounds like instead of talking yourself up, there's people around you talking you up, and and to me that makes it more valid. Instead of you standing up and being like, "I did this thing," there's other people talking about it instead, and I think that that gives it validity. Right, and that precedence is usually set because I, I purposely make it a like a, a theme for me too that i always will compliment the people around me like even if i know right. i was doing something i want like because that's the part of the noticing everything it's like hey just so you know even though i finished them they like 25 percent of their attention was on you because you did that little thing that was great keep that stuff up and so it's just uh because that's like you know the the leading by example like thing like like that's how i like to live my life anyways is like if i feel like i I figured something out before someone. It's I don't see it as a competition. I see it as well. Now we all figured it out this fast. Isn't that great? Right. Yeah. No, I dig that. That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, it kind of the last thing on this on this idea of boasting, real quick, mm-hmm. is I have I have seen people who they may get like one kill in a particular fight, and they afterwards they're talking about how they wiped an entire side. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you think this form of boasting is useful? It has. It's it. You know, there's time and place for everything. Like once again, lesson in everything, and it's a. Uh, I think it could be useful depending on the people around them if they notice what's going on. Because like, if this guy wants to wants to make themselves a target, because more times than not, everyone around them is gonna know it wasn't true, so they're gonna know it's that kind of a boast, and so that could that could set like that subconscious thought to where like they're just thinking about it too much. Mm-hmm. And so that could that could even help his team. Like some people don't even know. It's like, oh, if you got one of these types of people on your team, they're naturally being a brighter light for you. So so you're going to be able to sneak around in those shadows. Or they draw aggro. Yeah, it were. absolutely. Yeah, uh, if they draw aggro. Yes, that's a good way to put it. I can dig that. And, and no, and, and I've definitely seen people who are definitely boisterous. You know, mm-hmm. they go out there and they're they're making a bunch of noise. Uh, Dio comes to mind. You yeah. always know where that man is on the Absolutely. field. Absolutely. But uh, it, it, like you say, it works to the benefit because as everybody shifts their their attention to him, yeah, the the rest of his team can do what they want to do. That's like if you have the red fighter on your team that shouts red loud enough, then you just wait for that to happen, and and you'll see a hole naturally somewhere else because some people's like consciousness is is just naturally moving to that especially if they're not used to someone being that loud on the field right no and and uh one of my previous co-hosts oni shiro is a very good example of this you you can hear like you know oni right yeah yeah we naturally work well together because he'll just he'll just get spotlight on him and i'm like cool so i'll let him be there and i'll be like three people away from him so it's just enough out of people's like peripherals and I can just work off of them all day. 
And as they're sitting there being like, man, this red is just going to town, then you're kind of slipping in between the ribs, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Knife in the dark. <laughs> um, so untrue things, like you said, they can be used, they can't be used in terms of boasting. They can, you know, it's, it's something that can have its place on the field. Mm-hmm. Off the field, this sort of thing can turn to rumors. And I have seen rumors uh, not just make or break a reputation, but also make or break a larger organization, like a realm or a unit or a, a, a team of some sort. What has been your experience with rumors? So, especially with Belegarth, so um, ever since I started Belegarth, I've been, that was like when I first started in life being able to travel and like go to different places. So I've actually, you know, starting out small realm, you have a couple big vets who, who've been to all the big events. They know people, you just hear these stories of people going around and like, and, and whether they're good stories or bad stories, like everyone has a villain. But then when you actually go to these places yourself and like you don't have any of the people you're comfortable with and you're just in a new place, because it would happen to me a lot and I would just have to, it would feel like I'd have to learn people, like meet, meet a whole community all over again, even though it's like the same strand of community. And then so you get to see it through your own lens, which is like, I like anyways, I like to experience things myself. Like I don't, I don't like to give too much grain to, to, the, to those kinds of like conversations. Sure. And uh, so you definitely see, and then you can, if you, if you take time to pay attention to it, it's like a big puzzle that you can put together. It's like, okay, I can see how you guys got to this conclusion. And I can see where probably someone used some slightly different words that, that, that led you down this thought process. But, but I can like, but then you can like backtrack to that point, like, but it was still built on this foundation of who this person actually is. And I think if you got to know that side of it, you would see this is just like one branch on the tree, basically. Well, sure. I mean, uh, a lot of times when people are talked up, especially in, in terms of like Eastern fighters, like mm-hmm. the way we know of Eastern fighters or vice versa, uh, there can be this this legend aspect where you, Absolutely. as you <laughs> yeah. said, kind of see them as this paragon of whatever, um, either virtue or vice, mm-hmm. and nobody ever lives up to their own legend. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's like it's, it's fun to have the legend, but it's not. It's it's yeah. You're definitely like oh, okay. You know, it's 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 a little bit of that. Don't meet your heroes like mentality. Sure, sure. I, I know at least in in some part back in my early twenties. Uh, you know, sorry. Uh, parents of kids on this particular show. I'm going to make this as vague as possible. I liked to go to parties mm-hmm. in my early 20s, and uh, I got I developed a bit of a reputation for it. Mm-hmm. And so th- there were a bunch of people who I've never met in Bellegarth who had heard the stories of some of my less uh, dignified adventures. And so when I'd meet them, they would like especially like I've I've basically quit drinking at this mm-hmm. point. I I might have one every now and then, but it's not something that happens. But of course they'll they'll meet. And they'll be like, oh, you're the party guy. And it's like, I'm the book guy. <laughs> yeah, I am the yeah. book guy. <laughs> I get that. I get that a lot, yeah. Well, I'm sure, because, again, you're you're another one of those much-spoken-of fighters. Like, mm-hmm. uh, people enjoy talking about your exploits. Uh, you don't talk about yourself very often. That that tempts people yeah, uh, to do it more. It's like the mystique of it. And then until... Cause I like to, I like to see it as like a special event thing, you know, like when you're all finally settled, like around a nice fire and people like, it just naturally comes in conversation. They're like, Hey, like, like tell us like a story. Cause that's like, that's my big passion is being a storyteller. So it's like when, when they give me that stage, that's when I'm like, all right, like I'm, Oh, you, you like you asked. And that's like, that's like the magic word. It's like a genie. Like if you just give me the wish you want, like I'll, I'll work to grant it. And that's, and so I'm just always waiting for those moments. So it feels like it's a, 
it's a together thing it's not just me like because like i have like i said i have my biggest problem is like taking up my own space so i have to like like the, my brain sometimes waits for that permission well, you know, I, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing because we both know folks who go up there and they just shove their stories down your throat. And even if they, they might be cool stories from time to time, you're like, dude, shut up. I do not care anymore. Yeah, and you're like, trying to be nice and there's like a whole, you know, the expectations of, of part. That's like the, like we, we call it trapdoor spidering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah snag you with the stories of old but but what you're doing i think is is, is so much better because you wait for people to show interest mm -hmm. and then when you're telling the story they actually want to listen to it because they wanted to in the first place yeah absolutely and then and and like any chance i have i'm trying to to draw other people into it and like l i really like how like the universe speaks sometimes because people even if like they're saying something like half as a joke or you'll hear someone like say some like little name, like maybe something cool happened. They're like, oh, that was like a, that reminded me of like a falcon or something. Like, like they say something that leads to it and you're like, oh, well now it has like a name tied to it. And that's part of the story going on. Like the big thing for that for me was because uh, in Belagrath they do uh, my fights to the death with people. So it's like a one-on-one -on -one fight, but we plan it months ahead. And, I, and the whole time it's like, I want them to actually feel the weight of like, what if this is a fight where you're putting your actual life on the line? And okay, then, yeah. and then, based on what happens there, that's how I write the story. So it's like part of. So, like I said, I'm an anime protagonist because I'm writing that story. Is me and Shy will fight based on if he won the fight. You know, that means during the arc where we fought each other, he ultimately will win that fight. And based on what happened in the fight, I find little details to write that story out. Sure, and that that includes them into it. I, I think that's really cool too, where it's where it's uh, an inclusive storytelling thing, not mm -hmm. just you know this is what I say about myself, but it's also this is what we're saying about uh, ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those I think those sorts of stories live on longer because it's less associated with one person or their glory or their exploits, and it has more to do with uh, a group experience, really. Yeah, you know, because that's the part that I that's the best thing I got from Belagarth was this really thriving community and like the first place where really I could be myself because like because even as a kid like I had I had a hard like I had a hard time playing pretend in front of adults and so when I first came to Belagarth because that's like the expectation you think you're having because they're all pretending to kill each other so that right. that bled into it so it's like oh man and and I see that in a lot of newer fires too is like their first like you're seeing they're getting comfortable and it's not just them getting comfortable with like wanting to be good or fine with weapons they're getting comfortable because they know people on the outside are watching them right and that's like one of the big i think that's one of the biggest hurdles sure and i and i imagine that that wasn't as difficult from you coming from a martial arts background and mm -hmm. being observed in that way but no i i absolutely see it too people go out there and they get a little freaked because they're yeah. if they're so exposed it's not just you and the other person but there's everybody else all around too yeah but it helps you, like, like if, you're, if you're willing, once again, that lesson there, it helps you find out a little more who you are because you, and, like, once you, especially once you feel empowered with, like, once the skill starts setting in and you you really feel like you're, you're going into your own, it's, it's more than just that fighting aspect. It's because you're, you're mentally setting yourself on a path because, because of muscle memory, because of, of the mental games involved. Like, like whenever you fall for something, it's like you're, it's like you're just getting that experience, those experience points straight to, straight to your brain. Like it's buffing it. Right, right. And, and I think there's a, a valuable lesson to be learned in being able to ignore 
the fact that there are people on the sidelines not letting it, it mess with your head. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time that I let, like, that I cared. And yeah. I don't mean that as, like, a, a super jaded dismissive way, but when I'm on the field, when I'm looking at my opponent, I, I don't really care who's standing on the side. I, you know, I don't care if there's a pretty girl or a pretty guy watching me. I don't care if there's my ex-mentor over there. I It's me and my opponent, you know? Yeah, and that that was a hard part for me a lot. And that, like, like I know that's tied to because, like, you know, when you're a kid, one of the biggest... Because, like, cause like, like I, I definitely am the type of person that would pick that picks stuff up quickly. So, mm-hmm. so as a kid, like, people that can't process that, the, the first thing they always throw at you is, like, oh, you're showing off. And that right. that echoes in my brain constantly whenever I'm doing anything, like like even when I'm doing like my dancing, like roller skating, stuff like that. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't want it to be seen as showing off. I want people to see it as the possibilities of where they can also be, and and, right. I, and I want them to feel that all they have to do is like ask for it, and I will extend the hand and just be like, all right, here's what I did. If it doesn't work for you, that's one you know that's one possible way out of the way so now you're you're that much closer to figuring out what will work for you or making the the skill more accessible to people yeah absolutely no i dig that and there's a skill that is not shared it it dies Mm -hmm. you know I, i i take joy personally in teaching other people how to beat me right um most of my students when i'm working with the high school you know, they come in and they're they're with me for four years and if they're not good at killing me by the end of it i feel like i failed because i try to teach them kidney wraps i try to teach them knee drops like all of these little like dirty feints and tricks and most of the time they're they're all very good at killing me by the end of those yeah. four years and, and and not just me but other people as well but that's kind of the idea i want to share my secrets yeah and that's and because that helps me because like i said being a momentum fighter it's always me stacking on whatever just happened which means mm-hmm. they make that a more interesting game when they start picking up the like first level tricks. Cause, uh, cause when I was in Utah, we they actually have like a child centric practice. It's like for like younger, younger kids to teens and stuff, and like the adults will go out there and play with them too. So it's like it's like it's still the Bellagarth rules, but it's 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 like the the hit calibration isn't a thing. So so you can still like the kids they can hit you as hard as they're able to, and it'll still count on you. And then, uh, and I, so out there, I had a lot of opportunity because, like I said, I have that martial arts experience, and I'm actually, uh, I'm actually licensed, uh, a licensed instructor in a Tong Soo Do. So, uh, so I would bring, I would bring a dojo setting to teaching these kids, so I can help build up their natural muscle memory. And then mm-hmm. from there, that means when they're at practice, they're allowed to just do whatever they want, and because they're not thinking about it, because they're just kids, like they, they don't have that complex thought. So you're just watching their muscle memory build in a way that like you you wouldn't be able to, and it's like it's like mind blowing to watch it happen. Oh yeah, I mean the kids that are that are raised in this tradition, they're insane. Like I mm-hmm. I came in when I was 15, and I feel like it gave me a certain leg up over or some people who came in later because of that muscle memory thing that you're talking about. But I know folks whose parents were in it, and they were raised in the sword fighting community, <laughs> and they're like scary good because it, it just comes naturally to them, you know. Yeah, and that's like I'll be out there for hours fighting kids just because it's like I'm learning so much off them and they don't even know they're teaching and that's what makes it like an extra special thing even. Oh, that noob foo is real though. Yeah. If, you, if we can, because like it's always something strange It's because they don't know the rules yet. They don't know yeah. how they're supposed to do it. So they're just throwing stuff out yeah, there. Yeah, no expectations except for just hit them hard enough where it's going to count. And, then, and that's right. all And that's all they're doing. And, and it's, 
you know i've had a couple moves that i've developed just from watching really strange fighting and it usually does come from newer fighters or something they're trying out and then when i see it i'm like hey let's let's try to build on that real quick that looked sick like and like like i'll sit there and theory craft to some people we'll get some crazy shots because like because like once you start stacking moves the best way to reset it is to do something completely out there because if it works it just if it works that's all they're thinking about and you can just start doing the things you were doing before again so you can just so that's like what like my spin shots and stuff like that are for is it's it's meant as a mental reset and then they just they forget everything they were thinking about because they're just like i can't let them spin on me again there's no way that's like all that's going on in their brain but if you were to use them all the time, then it mm-hmm. would just become commonplace and it wouldn't have the same uh, yeah. psychological impact. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, like, and I always tell people this because, uh, and that's part of that rumors part you were talking about actually, is a lot of people know me as someone that like does wacky things or spin, like spin shots, especially, especially in the West, a lot of people talk about my spin shots and stuff. And I always tell people, I'm like, you know, like I only throw them like, and being even nice only like five percent of the time it's just that's the part people remember and so if they speak about it loudly enough it sets that as a heavier expectation and so that leads into like special feints that no one else sees because no one knows what like a fainted spin shot really looks like until it became like sure. part of the newer meta right right and and it works on newer fighters too because if they've heard the legend of the stitch mm-hmm. A spin shot then when they go against you they're like oh oh where is it where's it yeah, gonna come from yeah. and that's always like uh because like one of the things i'm really good at is i can run lines in a bear pit really well because of that because you recognize who like probability wise like all right it's gonna work on him the best which means even if i die from it it doesn't matter because the risk versus reward is so good that if i landed on him i have guaranteed the next three people they're mine because you just got in their heads yeah absolutely I dig that. I dig that. Well, I, I think right b- before we go, I do want to talk to you a little bit the, about networking. You were talking about the importance of community, the importance of, of building people up around you. Mm-hmm. And do you do that in a, in a targeted way? Like, you, like, for instance, if you need a crafter in the group, like a, a, a seam, seamster or somebody who works with sewing, is there a, a purposeful acquisition of somebody like that into your life? Or do these things just kind of grow naturally? They, for me, they definitely just grow naturally because I, uh, I want to give everyone a fair shot. And the only time that I don't is like because like there are, cause like I said, just because of my upbringing, like I am, I'm very skilled at like seeing certain red flags before like they really become a thing. And so I'll it's, it's more of a like my and that's where I'm just trusting an instinct is like, oh, I don't know if I want to get fully into this part but I still have to let them know through example. And that's where like, I'm a little cheeky sometimes is like, I'll, I'll, I'll act a way that I know is completely against how they think things should be. And I'll do it right in front of them with other people who are also in agreement. And it kind of, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, it's like a positive peer pressure kind of sinking in on them. And then they start, cause then, cause then you see the gear turn a little bit. They're like, well, what do I normally do in this situation? And why did I think that was okay? Why, how come his is completely different and he's getting the result I wanted to get? And, and then it like, it like really like turns, turns those gears and stuff. Sure. Sure. No, I dig that. Um, and, and that's a, that's a nice way to go about it. It leads to genuine relationships, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, they're people that you enjoyed being around to begin with. And so when they become part of your social network, mm-hmm. as it were, uh, it's, it's something that's already comfortable. For yeah. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's just. 
because same thing like i want people to come up and interact with me and i want those chances to talk about things which means you need to be encouraging in that way and and because of the nature of especially when i'm fighting because i'm so in my own head that it, it i i just stop i stop giving like facial signals or anything i'm just fully in it and, and some people see that as an intensity and so so i have to whenever i'm not fighting really show them that like i'm very open it's like like i'll laugh i'll crack jokes you know it's like like that's why i love blackwater so much because we'll just we'll just crack jokes that like people see as like us being young mentally and stuff like that and it's it's just like oh we're just literally vibing and having a really good time and we're 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 showing you you're allowed to do it not only with us but just in general i like that that's a that's a really good mentality and I am sad to have to cut this short because I am really enjoying our conversation. I would love to have you back on the show at some point. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I would I would I would love to talk just about anything and everything. So I'm 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 definitely down. Well, we talk a lot about those things on on this show. So, uh looking forward to having you back at some point, sir. Uh, But as for the rest of you, we are going to move on to the second portion of our discussion of the Age of Sturlungs. finish up our study of the Age of Sturlungs, Iceland's most bloody conflict internally with a lot of strife, a civil war of sorts. So where we come in, if you recall from last episode, we had just finished with the largest land battle in Icelandic history, which was the one of, oh God, early Skidater. Yeah, we're going to go with that. And what that did is it left the Aspernings in charge and Colby and the Young. They're the most prominent group in the land now. They uh, decide what goes on. Around this time, Snorri Sturlson, you'll remember that he was the, the guy who was originally in charge of the Sturlungs and then he was ousted for a more aggressive candidate sent to, to Norway. Well, he's sent back to Iceland because he uh, supported an attempted coup against the king. Not smart. And uh, folks there in Iceland get the instruction to to make sure that he kind of disappears. So in 1241, a group of assassins led by Gissur Thorvaldsson of the Haukdelir, they kill Snorri. You know, as a group. Remember that from the first one where Ref was like, I ain't fighting a group. Well, this is why. They tend to win. A year later, in 1242, Thorgar Sigvatsson this is Snorri's brother, returns home from where he's been just kind of adventuring abroad. And he's looking for vengeance. Uh, You can't imagine why. His father and his brothers were all killed within this little internal conflict. I, I, I cannot imagine why he would be mad. But he's not hasty. You might expect somebody who returns presumably in some sort of emotional state, even if it's not overt, you think that they would be rather rash in their decision-making. But not this guy. No, no, Thorgar is extremely smart about this. He's a good leader, for one thing. And he builds his power, slowly, reacquiring the strengths that the Sturlungs once had. And builds a power base with with allies, brings people together. 
slowly, smart, until he's finally got a group that is large enough to do something. He's got to breathe some life back into the stir lungs. And this kind of escalates till on June 25th in 1244, there's a, the Battle of the Gulf. And this was the only battle in Icelandic history where both sides were Icelanders. And this took place in Hunafloy Bay. If you're looking at a map, it's kind of up there in the northwest. Uh, most of this action that we talk about throughout the Age of Stirlungs takes place in the north northwest of Iceland. So in this bay, you had the Stirlungs, uh, led by Thorgur Sigvetsson, versus the Aspingers. No, Asperninger, Aspernings. Yeah, I am so bad at this. <laughs> I am so sorry to anybody from a Nordic-speaking country. Uh, I'm butchering your language. But anyways, those guys. And they're being led by Colbyn the Young, our friend again. And the Stirlungs have 15 ships under their command, and the Asbernings have 20 ships. Now, the outcome of this battle is really fuzzy. History doesn't know much about it. The casualties are unknown, and the results are fairly inconclusive. It doesn't really give one side or the other a clear advantage. But what I can tell you is that the primary weapon during this battle were rocks thrown between the boats. I'm not sure how I'm picturing this. Is this like a shot put scenario? Are we talking about like a slingshot? Wouldn't be big enough for a catapult? I just don't know. I have so many questions. As, as a rock user myself, I must know how this is used in a, in a naval conflict. Anyway, obviously it wasn't that effective because the results were inconclusive. And there's some more fighting. There's some more minor conflicts for the next two years. But in 1246, April 19th, we had a rather decisive battle that took place. It was the Battle of Haugsnes. Yeah, sure. Again, we have the Stirlungs, our main guy, Thorgur Sigvatsen. But Colbyn the Young was, in fact, getting old. And so his son has stepped up. Now, this is Brandir the Infant, because, you know, the original guy was Colbyn the Young. <laughs> no, his name is Brandir Colbyn's son the infant. No, that's not part of history. Don't write that on your test. So under the Stirlungs, you had about 500 men, give or take. And for the Osbjörn, Asburn, I even practiced this before the show. I swear to God. <laughs> Asburning, Asburnings, yeah. Uh, they have about 600 men. Now the losses here, this was the bloodiest conflict in Iceland's history. So it's kind of cool. Over the course of this age of Stirlungs, we had some really big firsts and some some standout things that have just kind of been around for the last what thousand years a little short of thousand years you have the largest battle or the only naval battle between the the icelanders and then the bloodiest battle so this is a fairly influential time when we're talking about icelandic history the losses so the sternlungs lost about 40 men and the osbernings lost around 70. and this was a victory a solid Stirlung victory here, and it uh, marked, effectively marked the end of Asburning rule. The Stirlungs were back in preeminence. Now you'll notice through all these fights that Thorger and Gisser, you know, uh, Gisser Thorvaldsson, they never fight. You think they would because Gisser Thorvaldsson was leading the mob that killed Snorri, this guy's brother. 
Now, the reason for this was because they were both, both vassals of Norway. Now, this was significant. The Norwegian king didn't want the people who served him fighting amongst themselves. And so they had to kind of put their beef away. And they did. And Thorger comes to ascension, being, you know, the, the head of the, the group that is in control. And he rules Iceland almost autonomously from 1247 till 1250. But things are breaking down this whole time. You've got several other minor conflicts. There's attempted assassinations all over the place. Very not, you know, quote unquote, Viking behavior. A lot of the things that take place during this time are completely against the code of honor that we had discussed. Completely against the code of decency. And so after these years of strife, these years of bloody, senseless conflict, the Icelanders agree to submit to the king of Norway. And this is the end of the Commonwealth. And they don't retain their, they don't get their independence again until the early 1900s. So thus ends the Age of Stirlungs, Iceland's most violent and turbulent period in their history. One has to wonder, I mean, how cool is it? How, how peaceful of a country do you have to be that this is your worst period of conflict? I mean, I'm from America, and our bloodiest war was the one we had with ourselves, which far outstrips the combined other wars that we've had. Outstrips by far World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Spanish-American War, Iraq, Afghanistan. None of them holds a candle to the number of American lives lost in the American Civil War. Which, come to think of it, was more than the entire population of Iceland right now. So... It's context, obviously, we have way more people here, but this, I don't know, this this speaks to a whole lot of, and I don't know much about Icelandic culture from here on out. I study military history. And so Iceland being a peaceful nation and not involved in war after this, well, except for the conflict that we're going to cover next episode. I'm looking very much forward to it. The, the name may sound silly, but it actually had fairly serious international complications. So that's just a little teaser. A little teaser for that for that next one but no yeah i just i don't know and and i'm sure that if there's an icelander listening to this they're like we have our internal issues like everybody else we have parties that disagree and and protesters and all that sort of thing and and i'm sure you know i'm i'm sure it hasn't been all roses nothing ever is that's not history wouldn't be interesting if it was but my point stands and this is, I don't know, this was kind of a cool thing to look at too because you have this slow breakdown of the honor system, of this binding group of principles that tells us what's okay and not okay. As the desperation for the rulership here accelerates. In my opinion here, the Stirlungs achieved what is called a Pyrrhic victory, which is where you technically win, but you don't really win. Like in this case, they, they won all these battles, and they kind of won out as being the, the de facto rulers of Iceland. But it came at a cost. And inevitably, they weren't able to preserve that fragile peace. So, like I said, they may have won in this particular case, but they didn't really win. And this term Pyrrhic victory goes back into antiquity. We will cover that battle at some point. But if you're curious about it, just look up the, the origins of it. It's actually a pretty cool story. But yeah, I, I'm not sure if there's much more to say about this. Uh, the Age of Stirlungs comes to an end. And uh, yeah, Norway takes over at that point. 
And next time we'll talk about a conflict that Iceland had with another nation. In fact, a superpower, one of the world's superpowers. So look forward to that. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>